It's Tuesday, listener, so get ready for some police corruption. It's our documentary series from journalist Lenny Grimaldi. Lenny wrote a book called Chased that tells the surreal story of an undercover narcotics detective named Billy Chase who worked inside the Bridgeport, Connecticut Police Department at the height of the crack wars in the 1980s. This story has it all. Corrupt cops, the Gambino crime family, crooked politicians, and an epic tale that defined an era of an American city. Here, of Chase, executive produced and written by Lenny Grimaldi. Let me ask you a question. Don't you think it's kind of stupid to investigate guys you went to school with? I didn't go to school with him, though. He went to Hardy. I was going to Hardy's prom. But I mean stupid, I meant dangerous, a little nutty. Nah. I mean, these are the guys that had to be done. You know, I mean, I had no kind of... We'll come back I wasn't, to married. I wasn't married to the guy. Okay. You know, I mean... <laughs> All right, we'll come back to stuff. Right, okay. All right, so you knew Dick, though, from high school. Mm-hmm. So when I found out, I said, come on, I can't beat him. And they're like, nah, I'm serious. I said, oh, well, this will be a piece of cake. I mean, you guys talking about big time. It's, to me, this ain't big time. I know this guy, you know. I know his brother. You know what I'm saying? And so... I saw Dick said, right here. I was like, yo, I heard you guys are booming over here. He said, oh, yeah, man, we're controlling shit. I said, well, you know booming. Right yeah, booming. That's another word for getting large, you know what I'm saying? They, they were living large, making a lot of money. Booming means you're making a lot of money, getting up there. I mean, but you approached him as Bill Chase, the guy yeah, he knew me from the school. school. Yeah, right, yeah. He knew you were a cop. Right, but he, I don't think he remembered my name. No, I remember Bill, but I never used my last name. But uh, they found out. They, they, they got me. They, they, I, I, I'll get to that. In episode one, journalist Lenny Grimaldi started to lay the foundation as to the story of undercover police officer Billy Chase. And also to explain the mechanics of a time and place, which is Bridgeport, Connecticut, an American industrial city in the 1980s. I think almost everyone in America has heard the terminology crack cocaine, but I would be curious to know how many people truly understand how it completely shifted the criminal underworld of every major American city. In every geographic location, whether it was Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, each had these crack cocaine crews that took over pockets of geography. It was inside communities where the police went from being in control of these neighborhoods to seeing waves of murder and violence decimate each of them. This is still being reconciled to this day. For this story, I needed to understand the complexities of Billy Chase. He chose a dangerous path and in the process lost his mind and his soul. But for me, Billy Chase's story resonates because it truly gets inside the gears of a city, which is Bridgeport, and a police department that was okay sending minority officers onto the front lines, yet behind closed doors showed them no respect. Ron Bailey worked with Billy Chase inside the Bridgeport Police Department. He also worked undercover 
inside the neighborhoods like Father Panic Village, which was a war zone. He was a close friend of Billy, maybe the closest. Well, my name is Ron Bailey. It's actually William, but everybody calls me Ron, my nickname. My name is Ron Bailey. I uh, started my career in 1983. I never, ever thought about being a police officer. I uh, actually got beat up when I was a teenager by a police officer for no reason. And I didn't like cops. I didn't want to be around them. I, you know, when I saw one, I would go the other way because I just, you know, had a bad experience. I was uh, at the mall, High Hole Mall downtown. I was doing some shopping, and this big police officer came towards me, and I didn't know what he wanted, and I got a little worried because I thought, okay, I'm going to get beat up again for nothing. And I was trying to get away from him, and he kept saying, young man, young man, come here, I want to talk to you. So I finally stopped. He came over. His name was Ted Meekins, big guy, well-dressed, you know, shoes all shine. I'm like, okay, what's he going to say that I did wrong now? He was so nice and so polite. And he wanted me to take the test to be a police officer. I told him I didn't want to take the test to be a police officer. And I fell for the oldest, oldest gag in the book. He said, well, if you don't think you're capable of passing the test, then don't worry about it. And I looked at him like, what? <laughs> so he convinced me to take the test with that challenge. And he promised me if I would show up to Central High School to take the test, he would be there. And when I got there, that man was there. I took the test and I passed it and the rest is history. I spent 30 years in the city of Bridgeport. Inside of Bridgeport, there are a number of housing projects, and these housing projects have come to define territory in terms of the drug game. Even today, the gangs inside of Bridgeport identify with housing projects, whether it's Trumbull Gardens, the Green Homes, P.T. Barnum. One of the worst was a place called Father Panic Village, which was eventually torn down because it was rife with crime and desperation. Well, when I was living in Father Panic, there definitely was a lot of danger there. I mean, there were shots every night. My mom wouldn't let me sleep in the bed. I had to sleep on the floor just to avoid a shot coming through the glass and end up in the bed. Or if those were continuous shots, she'd put me in the tub. You know, and shut the door. So you stay in there. Uh, Green's apartment wasn't as bad, but it was bad enough. There was always, you know, fights and not so much gun. There was gunshots, but not like in Father Panic. But there was always fights. There was always cars being stolen, people's house being broken. They actually robbed my mother's purse. Purse was, you know, and I was like, wow, you know, what a, what a place. Um, a lot of problems. A lot of problems, especially in the projects. Uh, when I got into the police department, they were very hostile towards us because a lot of the police officers family members got knocked out of the box to make room because of the because of the testing and the results of the testing where the the court found that the the test was discriminatory in nature effect so when they brought all of these minorities in they were very resentful we had cartoons you know of, of gorillas in uniform all kind of stuff in the bathroom walls little notes left uh i remember one uh supervisor, uh, I asked him a question. He says, well, you know, the court qualified you, so why are you asking me? In other words, he wasn't going to help me at all because the court qualified me to get on because of the color of my skin. It's like, wow. And uh, again, the guardians were very instrumental, like, look, we're going to have to work through this. They're very upset about it. And um, history. 
it's a learned behavior. It's just like a kid. You don't know of racism until somebody teaches it to you. So it's the same thing going to the police department. Because a person coming into law enforcement, you don't know how to get away with stuff. Somebody got to teach that to you. And that's the problem right now because all the leadership. Racism is ignorance. I mean, you know, why would you not like someone because of the color of their skin? I never had that problem. You know, it just didn't make any sense. But, you know, yeah, it, it's going on to this day. It's still going on. So it's one of those things that America's going to have to wake up from and deal with sooner or later. Hopefully we'll get there. It looks like we're getting there. But back then, it was really, excuse my expression, it was hell working at that department. They did not want us there. And they would look for any excuse to bring me up on charges. I'm like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? The dichotomy of minority police officers at that time in the 80s was completely backwards. Departments were filled with leadership who were ingrained with racist tendencies. Yet, they also knew that brown and black cops could penetrate neighborhoods and criminal entities that no white officer in a million years could. Ron Bailey found out right away how this worked, but in the end, he didn't let it affect him the way it did Billy. Well, they assigned me to Father Panic Village right away. And when I got over there, I was like, okay, uh, I was a musician before I became a cop. So I knew a lot of people out there. So they were like, you're a police officer. So the, 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 the friendship was there. And it, how, how far into your um, stint at the Bridgeport Police Department do you meet Billy Chase? Ooh. When Billy first came in, and I forgot what year it is. I'm thinking 87, I think. Uh, when he came in. You know, the, the, the talk was already, oh no, who does this guy think he is? He's coming from another department and, you know, who was he? And Billy is, um, Billy was a preacher. <laughs> he was a preacher in a police uniform. He could sell you anything. He just was that way. And he sold himself to that department to get into working undercover and officers resented him for that because they thought he should go out in the field and pay, pay his dues. And he convinced him that he could do work undercover, and he, he started doing his work. Okay, I'm a little confused on the years because so much was going on during that time. I was amazed that they would accept him because we weren't well-liked. You know, the color of our skin just kept us out of key positions. So when he got in there, it's like, okay, more power to you, you know. It was all the way that I approached him. See, let me tell you, I didn't know, I didn't know jack shit about him. I had to go to New York and be trained on the lingo, how to cut it. I was in New York and I had to be trained on all that shit with him. I didn't know. When it came to heroin, I didn't know jack shit. Okay, but that was part of your self-education. Right. How to, tell us about that because you were... I went to D. I went to DE and I said, look, you know, I'm talking heroin with these guys. Suppose they start asking me how you cut it. I'm bullshitting them now. They're asking me how am I selling it, this and that. And I mean, you sell it different than cocaine. You know what I'm saying? You get quarters. You got New York quarters. You know what I'm saying? It's $65 a piece. You got ounces. You get a scrambled ounce. Scrambled ounce, you pay four or five thousand. Scrambled? Scrambled ounce, right? Okay. That means it's already cut, you know? Mm -hmm. That's four or five thousand, forty-five hundred dollars at that time. Now, you could get a straight ounce, which is uncut, ten thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. Kilo heroin costs you twenty-five, two hundred fifty thousand dollars per kilo heroin. But, 
you could cut that kilo 17 times. So before you actually went to this particular Dix, you had been to New York to learn all this stuff? No, no, not yet. I met the Dix and I, I started buying. I was buying small quantities. Now I wanted to move up. Therefore, okay. I had to go and get this, you right. know, obtain this now. Now I started dealing with Alfred Dix. So we're talking and, you know, I'm, I'm buying shit from him and, you know, he's asking me, you know, he's telling me actually how he cuts it. I got all shit on tape. How he cuts it, how many times I could cut what he's selling you me. Don't have that oh, nah, hell no, I wish I did. And um, how many times I could cut it, you know, all that shit. And um, I set up a deal. I'm buying, you know, some decent, decent amount. And I set up a deal to buy an ounce. Now, this is where I kind of, this is what kind of pissed me off because the surveillance. The thing is, see, they, they, the feds, even the local feds, they do shit the wrong way. If you're going to infiltrate a black community, you can't have white guys in the car. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, it, they're going to stick out like a sore thumb. Unless you have a white guy with a black guy. You know what I'm saying? Or a black chick with a white guy. You know what I'm saying? Well, you would blend in more like that than two white guys sitting in the car in a black neighborhood. You know, you know what I'm saying? They're gonna, automatically going to think the man. Automatically. It's just not going to... And plus, the guys I'm dealing with, man, 40s and... Come on. I mean, if they were like, you know, minding your age, you know what I'm saying? Right. Getting, we fit in. You, di you did say that he was a preacher... What was it about Billy that enabled him to be such a good undercover? Well, the first thing that I, when I first met Billy, he saw me in lineup and he was waiting for me. And he came over to me and said, I need to talk to you, G. That was his nickname for me, G. I was like, okay. And he says, look, I heard you the man in the street. You know a lot about narcotics. I wasn't in narcotics yet, but I was making a lot of drug arrests. And he says, look, can you throw me a bone every now and then? You know, somebody that you, you, you grab and you know a lot of these people out there in Father Panic, which is good. Maybe you could send me this, send me that, and it could help me with my career. He said, these people, they hate me. They resent me. And I was like, well, Bill, you know, don't worry about what they think of you. You go ahead and do your job. Um, but when I talked to him, he was so convincing and so determined. I said, like, if he's like that with people in the street, People are going to be going to jail because he just sold himself to you. He, he, that's just the way he was. New York is a city under siege, and law enforcement appears powerless to stop it. For us that lived it, it was out of control. There were record numbers of murders, you know, into the thousands. We just forget just how unsafe things were. People knew that something needed to change. You must reaffirm the rule of law. And that gave rise to the era of mass incarceration. Do you see the evolution from just straight coke, heroin, marijuana, to then when the crack hits the streets of that transition? Did you witness that firsthand? I witnessed it firsthand. By the time crack came on the streets, I was working in narcotics. I got in narcotics December of 1986, and we were working on Mariano Sanchez, the number one family over on Clinton Avenue, and he was a big cocaine, you know, dealer over there. And unfortunately, he had my nephew working in that crew, along with a few other people. And uh, long story short, when the feds, when crack hit hit the city, it was devastating. And unfortunately, when we did take that well actually it was Billy Chase but when we did take down Mariano Sanchez 
uh, it was discovered that my nephew was heavily involved in taking cocaine from Mariano and he was one of the main figures turning into crack cocaine in Father Panic. So uh, it, it, it was a bad situation for me, but at the same time, I had a job to do. I mean, I remember the DEA called me in, do you know Benjamin Grant? Yeah, he's my nephew. Uh, did you know he's, a, you know, and I had to give him information. And uh, they used that information, they ended up taking uh, my nephew out. Uh, but when crack cocaine hit, 86, 87 in Bridgeport was when it really was prevalent. Man, oh man, oh man, the people that I saw on the streets that were just wasted. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think crack cocaine took uh, Mariano Sanchez's sister, Susie. Uh, she was, she ended up being, uh, being a lady of the evening. And next thing you know, they tell me she's, uh, she's passed away. I actually tried to talk her off the street because we were friends. But she didn't want to hear nothing. She was selling her body for that. 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 And when you say Billy worked deep cover, what, what exactly does that mean? What What did that mean for his life? Well, in comparison, I was undercover, but I would come in on uniform because we had union rules. And then when I went out, I had my toes in the car and I was switched because you're not going to sneak into a house in uniform. So I was doing what I had to do, but I was kind of like unauthorized in doing it, but I had to do what I had to do. Billy was plain clothes, undercover, different name, different ID. I mean, he was out there constantly. And it did, it, it did a number on him. You know, you could see the toll as time went on. I mean, he was just out there all the time. Imagine you're somebody else day in, day out, you know, calls at night, calls during the day, trying to do your job, worried about people trying to kill you, and he became that street. You know, he just didn't know how to get away from it, I guess. What was his cover story? What role or character did he like to play when he was undercover versus who he was in real life? <sighs> Billy kind of like to play the whole, I mean, it's like acting. You know, you become an actor and you, you enjoy any role you have. His favorite was obviously be pretending to be a small time dealer but sometimes he had to switch and be a buyer so he could get in and I hate to use the, the analogy of, of a preacher but you know a preacher is supposed to save your soul and sell you God well Billy was selling you himself that's what I mean when I say he was a preacher he could talk you into anything I mean knowing him I could have bought some from him because he was that convincing and so Billy goes undercover he starts his career how successful was Billy Chase in making cases? Anything he wanted, anybody he wanted to take out, he did, including people that knew him. I mean, he was just that good. Uh, I saw firsthand the toll was taken on because we came closer and closer as time went on. And uh, it, it was a shame how he, he, he just got burnt up, you know. And no, there was no checks and balances in place to deal with the issues that he was dealing with. Let's talk about number one family. When did you first hear about the number one family? God, I mean, that was all they were talking about back in the early 85, 84. So they had pretty much been established. Oh, yeah. When you were undercover. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he just got like... How did you come like, about to get involved with the case? Uh, so first of all, let's back up here. How is... Give us... 
interesting dichotomy Bridgeport in and of itself if you're living there isn't really that big of a city you just said something that is is pretty interesting is that you said he even took down people that knew him how did he manage to to maneuver or move around after a few bus in that city with how dangerous it was I don't know everything about how Billy snuck around compared to how I did things, but he was a master salesman. And I remember him, I remember asking him about one of his friends. I was like, how did you work? He said, man, they just believed that I was caught out. And so they sold me some. I was like, only you, <laughs> only you. I mean, he just, you, you see him one day and he looks perfectly healthy. And the next time you see him, he looks like a, a crackhead. I'm like, Christ, Billy. I mean, but he was just that good. I mean, he sold himself. That's how that's how he did it. He just sold himself. Now, Ron, when would you say that you started to really see the toll that Billy's work took on took on him personally, psychologically? Was there a specific event that you started to see that really he needed to get out? or he needed to talk to somebody. Can you pinpoint an actual event? We uh, would meet every now and then with our girlfriends or whatever, and just kind of like hang out. Not long, but just to get away from the department. And one night I noticed that while the girls were talking, Billy was lighting a cigarette from a cigarette from a cigarette from the filter. And I looked and I was like, okay, this ain't normal. I said, Billy, I don't remember you smoking and I don't really, I mean, what are you doing? Oh, I'm G, I'm G, I'm, and he started mumbling a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. You know, I'm like, okay, Billy, something's wrong with you. He just kept smoking cigarette from cigarette to cigarette. He couldn't stop. His conversation wasn't coherent. It was a lot of little jumble. And I was like, okay, Bill, you need to get some help. No, G, I'm fine. No, listen to me, Bill. I'm your friend. You need to talk to someone because something's not right about you. And um, he said... I couldn't follow up, but he said that he started to talk to someone because 
he wasn't sleeping well, he was irritable, he wasn't eating right, and he was worried about them finding him. I was like, Bill, you need to, to calm down. And then before we finished that conversation, he says, well, what do you do? I said, Billy, I got martial arts. I got my church. I don't hang around with cops except for you. And I don't take the job home with me. Between my spirituality and martial arts, which if you get frustrated, I can go beat up on my black belt. It's no problem. I have a release. What do you have? He had no answer. I said, well, there you go. You need to find something to do. An outlet besides his job is, is taking its toll on you, Bill. I'm telling you, people don't smoke four or five cigarettes in a row from a filter. They don't do that, dude. And he said he went to get help. The thing that I don't understand, and maybe you can explain to me, here's a guy who made cases for the feds. He made cases for the Bridgeport Police Department. Why did everyone turn their back on him? Chief Sweeney was in control at the time. I don't want to say that he turned his back on him, but they didn't do justice by him. First of all, they didn't recognize the signs, and there should have been someone out of that narcotics unit say, hey, look, you need to, to, to take a step back or get out the unit for a while and then come back. Um, when he got injured, I happened to be out of narcotics at the time for they take you out for a brief uh, time span and it was just sheer dumb luck they said that there was a man that got hurt and I was in the patrol car I was just taking I had just taken a break out of narcotics advice and when I rolled up there he is running with his arm hanging the gun in the wrong hand I'm like Jesus Christ what is he doing out here like this long story short after we get him off the street you can see that he's completely messed up he don't know whether he's coming or going. They're still not ordering him to go for help. In the meantime, he has to go for surgery. Now he's taking these meds because he has to have the surgery done. He had trouble adjusting to the fact that the department was not going to help him. And when they said, well, we're going to have to force retire, he didn't want to retire. He didn't have an identification to be retired to be someone else like they have for criminals. As a criminal, the feds will give you a new ID and put you somewhere else. Police officers didn't have that. And I think it was the state police that came in to give him a hand on a different identification. Billy was messed up. He was messed up when they retired him. He was messed up before they retired him. Because like I said, when you talk to him, he was incoherent. He was rambling. His thought process wasn't there like when I first met him. It just wasn't there. I'm pleased my reaction. He wasn't. Who was he? What was his background? Where did he come from? Um, I don't know too much about where he came from. I think he came from New York because I know when I had that conversation with him, I was lying. And he said he started out, he got out of jail, he had a gun, sold a gun, $200. He took the $200 of cocaine. He started his empire off with $200. And grew to mega, mega. He was enterprising. Pick up, you were talking about, he was unsurprised. Yeah, I mean, that's his second name, wow, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, that's how he started his empire, off $200 investment. And he was not a user. See, that was the thing. That was his key. You know, as long as he didn't use it, it's like in Scarface in the movie. You don't get high off your own supply. It's, a, it's a, 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 a commodity. And once you do that, 
once you start, you know, getting higher fuel supply. I mean, it's the same way Scarface, and there's a lot of, like, a lot of drug dealers learned a valuable lesson from that, you know. And uh, <laughs> it shows what can happen as a result of, you know, indulging. But uh, he was very, he was a good bit. Like I said, he insulated himself. You would see him in the area, but you would never see him handling anything. People come up, they be giving him money. But you would never, you know what I'm saying, you couldn't lock him up. But somebody come up to him and say, yo, what's up here? You don't lock him up for it. There's no drugs being transpired. It's just money. You know what I'm saying? He could just very well say, hey, the guy owed me some money. That type of thing. But uh, somewhere along the line, they knew we had to touch the drugs. So we, you know, they were trying to, let me tell you, Billy Perez and Ralphie, they worked their ass off trying to get Mariana. I mean, they, oh, man, they, they really busted their ass. And I got them on a fluke. And when I got them, Nobody believed it was him. I mean, they were like, I'm telling you, I was like the boy to cry wolf. I had to prove myself. I need to first establish how big they really were in their mind as far as oh, the hell, control man. of the West End. The control. They were damn near controlling. He had PP just about sewn up. Not only the West End, we were talking State Street area. I'm talking further on down. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that whole area was his, man. Any cocaine in that area? I have no regrets of what I did at the time. We thought by taking drugs off the street, uh, and I did refer any drug-dependent person to a, a place to, to help them, we thought that was the answer. Obviously, it was a failed policy because the war on drugs failed. I mean, drugs are still out there. And, you know, it's supply and demand. You're going to have to go to the root cause of that problem to get rid of that problem. Because as long as there's money in it, somebody can make money, they're going to do it. I was told by one of the feds that our economy is built on drugs and the money that comes from it. And if we pull that out, the economy might fail. I don't know how much he knew compared to me, but he was a, you know, he was an FBI agent. He was pretty straight with me. I did what I thought was right. I made my community as safe as I could. I never lied on anyone. I never planted anything on anyone. And even drug dealers that came out of jail, when they see me to this day, hey, Ron, how you doing? So I, knew, I, I know I did what was right. I followed the policy at the time. We now realize, now that I'm teaching in school, that that policy was a failure. The war on drugs, it, it didn't work. We still have drugs.